Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Prabita Saha. And I'm Jess Bodie. So on The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week, we start by each offering up a little tease about some kind of fact or story that we found in the course of reading, writing, reporting, trolling around on Reddit, etc., and decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Then once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Jess, on this side of the mic for the first time in a while. Yes, hello. I'm here. (laughs) Um, My tease is I want to talk about chicken hypnotism. Ooh, not to be confused with rose-colored glasses for chicken. That's correct. And cannibalism, which has previously been (laughs) my weirdest thing. Second chicken fact. On the chicken beat. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Perbita? I'm going to talk about animals that go against the grain and become friends and hunting partners. Oh, exciting. Heartwarming. Yeah. (laughs) My tease is that there was actually only ever one real Ferris wheel and we blew it up. Hmm. What? (laughs) (laughs) Are the rest? I got it. That's a bingo. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess we should start with that. How has there only been one real Ferris wheel? (laughs) I will tell you how, Jess. (laughs) Okay, so I was doing my usual thing of just kind of fooling around the most esoteric corners of the internet, and I don't even remember how, but I ended up on this 2015 Smithsonian Mag article by Jamie Malinowski, and it provided a really great jumping off point for a curiosity spiral. Wow, I wrote that down as a note and didn't even realize it was a pun, but we're going to talk about (laughs) the world's first and technically only Ferris wheel, which started, as so many things do, an American exceptionalist pissing contest. (laughs) (laughs) So we talk about world fairs a lot on Weirdest Thing and exhibitions because they were these opportunities for countries and cities to just put like all of their resources into pushing the envelope on science and engineering and medicine. And it was all about like people gathering to look at spectacles. During a certain period in world history, like most things were debuted at 
these kinds of events. And when Paris hosted the World's Fair in 1889, entrepreneurs and engineers spent more than two years and about $1.5 million building a tower around 1,000 feet high, the Eiffel Tower. And it spent 41 years as the tallest man-made structure in the world, which is when it was just barely surpassed by the Chrysler Building. So the Eiffel Tower, big deal, even though a lot of artists and other intellectuals in France made fun of it. One guy said it looked like like a hole-ridden suppository. What? Which is quite specific. <laughs> That's graphic. Um, someone was he else also French? Yes. <laughs> yes. Everyone who made fun of it was French. Like, everyone else in the world, I think, I mean, you know, I'm sure someone somewhere made fun of it. But generally, they realized it would be gauche to be like, you made the tallest structure in the world, but it's ugly. <laughs> So when Americans started prepping to host the world's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, which opened in 1893, they were still really smarting from the success of the Eiffel Tower, and they needed a comparable spectacle. Now, Eiffel himself offered to do the same thing but make it slightly taller, <laughs> but they decided that that was, like, kind of gauche and also would not be representative of American genius. So instead of <laughs> – we almost ended up with a slightly <laughs> taller right. Eiffel Tower – Chicago in Chicago. <laughs> Instead, enter George Washington Gale Ferris Jr., who what? was born on Valentine's Day, a fellow Aquarius, in Pittsburgh <laughs> to the Galesburg Gales. Oh my goodness. That's how you know you're you're from money is when the town <laughs> is named after you. Right. And uh, his family ended up moving out to Nevada, but he wound up back in Pittsburgh and founded a company that tested and inspected the metals used on railroads and bridges. So he was a steel man, very into engineering, very into creating sound structures, which is great. That's, you know, what you want from <laughs> a steel baron, I have to say. And in 1881, he responded to this call for proposals for the World Fair in Chicago with one that he said would out Eiffel Eiffel. It was just a big ass wheel. Uh huh. <laughs> just a giant wheel. It was a Ferris wheel, the first Ferris wheel. But what does that mean? So I'm not gonna, about to explain what a Ferris wheel is. Everyone knows. Probably. But Ferris didn't invent the concept of putting people on a wheel and spinning it around. They're actually so-called pleasure wheels that existed as early as the 1600s in Europe and Asia. But they were small enough for people to crank by hand. I have one illustration of a 17th century Turkish model. Oh, wow. Huh. I'll have a picture of this on popside.com slash weird. It looks like a menorah. <laughs> yeah, it looks very <laughs> angular. Yeah, it really was just like a frame with a crank on it. And you could sit and get probably like the best view of your <laughs> your small village that you were ever going to get. <laughs> yeah. Neighbor's hog field. <laughs> and, you know, really enjoy the wind rushing past your face as some sweaty man cranked you um, so you could go in a circle. And so these existed in in slight variations of the, like, mechanically operated cranked wheel for centuries. And then, according to many New Jersey publications, even today, Ferris stole the idea for the modern wheel from William Summers, who put up three pleasure wheels in Atlantic City in the early 1890s. Now, Ferris did apparently ride these wheels and, like, definitely got the idea that it would be great to build something like the Ferris wheel from them. But, like, I, to me, it's so embarrassing 
to as someone from New Jersey seeing these New Jersey newspapers being like, everyone knows the Ferris wheel was really invented in New Jersey because <laughs> Summer's wheels were only 50 feet high. So they were a big step up from the like hand cranked things of the 1600s. Mm-hmm. But what Ferris wound up building after spending a lot of time convincing the World Fair Committee and raising the $400,000 he would need to construct them, he made a wheel 246 feet high. Whoa. So just in a totally different league yeah. from these things in Atlantic City. And the engineering that went into them was incredible. The wheel was the single largest piece of steel ever made in the U.S., and it featured more than 100,000 parts. The axle alone weighed almost 90,000 pounds. Jesus. Yeah. And they even had to use, like, dynamite to blow the frozen ground open deep enough what? to put the foundation That's and so support down. <laughs> but yeah, because like, you know, there was going to be this huge wheel. And a lot of people, the reason he spent so much time convincing the committee is because people were like, this will not be able to hold itself up. There's mm. no way. And he ended up like, you know, like I said before, he owned a company that tested the structural integrity of metal for like bridges and railroads. So he actually ended up fronting the cost for the testing himself to prove that this could be done. But people were still skeptical and like, yeah, you needed to really get supports deep down into the ground and in Chicago that poses a problem. (laughs) So yeah, they use dynamite to blow holes in the ground. They do use steam to keep the ground from like refreezing while they worked. Um, And to run it, they built a pair of 1,000 horsepower reversible steam engines connected to a 20,000 pound sprocket chain that turned the wheel. And they commissioned a custom built air brake from Westinghouse. So it was just like, like some of the other, you know, things at World Fairs and Exhibitions we've talked about before. It just featured solutions to problems that no one had thought of before. Right. And the wheel had 36 cars, and each car was actually, like, as big as a railroad car. Mm. They were on there kind of horizontally across the bars, and each car could hold up to 60 passengers. So more than 2,000 people could be on at a time. So, yeah, you could have 2,160 people on it at full capacity. That's wild. And the ride was... 20 minutes long, just two rotations. It was not it was not very fast. But while the wheel made more than $700,000 in profits on just 50 cent admissions and it was open for I think 19 weeks. So, mm. yeah, tons of people went on it. I think like 1.4 million people, right? Because 50 cents 700,000. Ah, math. that's where I got that number. <laughs> um, but Ferris claimed that the World Fair didn't pay him his fair share of the profits. And remember, he had raised $400,000 to build this thing. So it would have been profitable if he had actually been given the majority of the ticket sales. But apparently he was not. Then, according to a couple of sources I read, his wife left him. Oh. And then he definitely got typhoid and he died. And he was just 37 years old at this point. It was just a couple years after his great wheel <laughs> um, and in fact, the funeral director who cremated him actually put a lien on his ashes for years because no one had paid for the funeral. Oh. So it wasn't until this is so sad. 15 years later that his brother got his ashes back. Yes, it is not amusing at all. No. <laughs> but what happened to Ferris's wheel? The one, the only, because he did not live long enough to build multiple right. true Ferris copyright TM wheels. <laughs> and also, you know, that's another thing is that he never was able to 
brand the Ferris wheel mm. in part, first of all, because he was so broke in the immediate aftermath and just like then he got sick and then he died. But also there was some legal contention from Summer, this guy in Atlantic City. So he probably wouldn't have been able to like brand the Ferris wheel anyway. But the wheel itself was moved and rebuilt in Lincoln Park, but was then sold in 1903 for not a lot of money at all. I found a few different estimates, but it was definitely just like a few thousand dollars at most. And it was moved to St. Louis for the 1904 World's Fair and then destroyed there in 1906 (gasps) with 200 pounds of dynamite, presumably just because like nobody would take over the maintenance cost or the cost of moving it and rebuilding it. So once the fairgrounds were being dismantled and nobody wanted to open an amusement park there, it was just easier to Blow it up. Blow it up. (laughs) Did that happen to a lot of the world's fair inventions? That's a great question. And I don't know, but I think, you know, most of them, if they were structures that large, they were meant to be there permanently. Right. You know, like the Eiffel Tower. But, and then, you know, most things that were just like wonders of engineering were a little bit more portable. Um, Butter sculptures. (laughs) Right. The butter sculptures, that was really up to you as as the butter sculptor to decide how much you wanted to invest in ice for the rest of your life to keep that that sweaty butter sculpture alive. But yeah, it got me thinking about Ferris wheels today, like Ferris's legacy. The tallest Ferris wheel today is 520 feet in diameter. So more than twice the height of the one at the World's Fair. Wow. And that's the high roller in Vegas. Each cabin weighs 44,000 pounds and has eight flat screen TVs inside what? for some reason. <laughs> so you don't have to look outside. I was going to say, yes. that beats the whole purpose. <laughs> and supposedly opening in October of 2020 is a 689 feet high oh uh, Ferris wheel in Dubai, which has been delayed a couple times, but Mm. is supposedly going to open in time for their World Expo in 2020. That's crazy. Where will it end? (laughs) They should put it on top of the Burj Khalifa. Oh, God. I would say that, like, monster. I I have been in Dubai once, and I just looked up at the Burj Khalifa from, like, the mall next to it, and I was like, I'm not afraid of heights, but this makes me feel sick to my stomach to yeah, look up at the top of this ground, thing yeah. from the ground. Yes. So I had zero interest in going up to the I top am afraid of, of heights and just thinking about it like <laughs> makes me sweat. <laughs> and then, you know, there are also a few like funky designs now. There are things like with like triple wheels that, you know, spin on yes. like multiple axes, which I wouldn't really call Ferris wheels. But according to Wikipedia, they are an offshoot. <laughs> Or wheels without a spoke where the cars just spin around on like a circular track. Mm. And then there are so-called eccentric wheels, like the Wonder Wheel in Coney Island. So those are the ones. (laughs) (laughs) So eccentric wheels are the ones where a car will like slide on like an inner track as it spins. And I just have to say, just to wrap this up with some reflection on how integral Ferris wheels are to our culture these days. I wouldn't even say American culture, just like, just human culture. Sure. We love a Ferris wheel. (laughs) And when Charles Herman built the Wonder Wheel on Coney Island in 1920, he called it the dip the dip. What? (laughs) Dip the dip. 
Uh-huh. That's right, Jess. The dip, the dip. And he, I hate that. <laughs> he promised to combine in his new invention, quote, the thrill of a scenic railway, the fun of a Ferris wheel, and the excitement of the shoot the shoots. What? What does that mean? <laughs> so I had to, it's a different I had, language. I had to Google shoot the shoots. <laughs> and it's like a log flu, but with a big boat instead of a log. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> that sounds awful. <laughs> and um, a science and invention article written at the time said that the Wonder Wheel provided, quote, a real thrill like you have probably never had before, at least not at this great height, which is just like a kind of measured journalism we really don't (laughs) see these days, probably haven't seen before, at least not at this great height. That's all I have to say about the Ferris wheel. I was shocked that there was this like tragic figure in Gail Ferris Jr. that yeah. I had never heard about before. I think it's tragic that he didn't get to see his invention for the World Fair turn into the amusement extravaganza <laughs> it is now. It really took the world by storm. You know, like any amusement park you go to, there's going to be a Ferris wheel as the focal point. But he only made one wheel, and he'll never know. <laughs> If only he could see that scene in the notebook where Ryan Gosling dangles off the Ferris wheel. Oh, it's true. So romantic. What a legacy. I don't remember that. Terrible. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. (laughs) It sounds familiar. And she's like, ah, stop. And he's like, not until you go out with me. Yes. That's how I remember it. Oh, okay. Maybe I just haven't seen the whole movie. I love emotional blackmail. Yeah. So romantic. Do you think Ferris Jr. got to ride his Ferris wheel? Oh, he did. Um, The first, the test ride before they had the passenger compartments in was just the workers, like, all hoisted themselves up on, like, the steel frame and took a And then, but the first ride, like, with the cars in place, Ferris and his wife, who apparently was a fair-weather Mrs. Ferris. Right. Because she left him. Man, who was, like, a cooler dude than that Ferris wheel guy? Like, who did she (laughs) leave him for? (laughs) I do not know. Um, But they, and I think, like, it was, like, them... Like the mayor and a marching band. It was so wow. <laughs> we're we're the first to ride. What an image! And I guess Festive. you really could have an, a whole marching band on there. You could have several marching bands. Right. I hope they played something jaunty as they were riding. Mm-hmm. But yes, he did. He did get to not only ride his Ferris wheel, but know that more than a million people enjoyed riding it. But he could have no idea of how many millions and millions more people would ride Ferris wheels. And I also think it's great that, like, even though his ownership over the concept was so contentious at the time, like, everybody calls them Ferris wheels right now. Yeah. Every time I see the phrase pleasure wheel (laughs) while researching this, I was like, ooh. Yeah, that sounds (laughs) gross. uh, Yeah. So, yeah. Pour one out for Ferris. All right. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with more facts. back. Prabita, why don't you tell us about your Pixar movie about strange animal friends? Okay, yeah, I can't (laughs) wait to turn it into a Pixar movie. So earlier this month, there was this really short and sweet clip that people were wilding about. It was this black and white 
remote censored camera capture from the Santa Cruz Mountains in California. And it showed a coyote and an American badger literally frolicking through this culvert, (laughs) this highway culvert that had been built to help wildlife go under roadways so that they don't get killed and so that their populations stay intact and such. So yeah, people were really shocked by this interaction. And a lot of scientists pointed out that this is a well-known relationship between coyotes and badgers. Specifically coyotes and badgers? Yeah. I love that. Oh my God. And it's surprising because the two are, you know, rivaling predators. Mm -hmm. They usually share... They often share the same habitats, and they'll also predate each other if, you know, Mm. the opportunity comes. But in this clip, you'll see that, you know, these two animals are very friendly with each other. Like, the coyote has quite a bit of spring in its step, and it's (laughs) almost like beckoning the badger through. And um, even though the clip is only, like, 12 seconds long, the conservation group behind it, Peninsula Open Space Trust, they wrote that the actual footage is, like, an hour long. So these two animals were interacting for quite a bit of time. So, yeah, this is, like I said, this is a well-studied relationship between the two species. And it actually stems from a cooperative hunting partnership. So when it's seen, it'll be seen on grasslands and kind of desert landscapes Mm. where, you know, conditions are tough. There are a lot of other predators looking for limited prey. And essentially what happens is that the coyotes and badgers play to each other's strengths. So you'll see two individuals pairing up and going after little rodents like ground squirrels and prairie dogs. And what they do is... So badgers are really good at tunneling, Mm. and they'll tunnel into the ground and kind of just pop into these squirrels' like burrows. (laughs) Wow. Surprise. (laughs) And scare the squirrels out. And the squirrels will run out of the tunnels and, boom, run right into a coyote's face. No way. Um, And then the coyote will give chase over the open ground and... In the end, you know, there is a shared meal between the badger and the coyote. And they really do share? Yeah. And, you know, this typically happens in the summer rather than the winter because in the summer, that's when these prey are not hibernating. Mm. So they're super active and the badgers can't really, they're not super fleet footed. Like the sure. <laughs> um, so they they're get, good at badgering. Huh? Yeah. yeah <laughs> it's right in the name. So, yeah, it, it's really a mutualistic partnership here. One study saw that these animals had a 9% success rate, better success rate, when they teamed up together. They both expended a lot less energy, either tunneling or running. And what's even more lovely is that it's not just about hunting, it seems. You know, like in this video, these animals seem to be playing and fostering this relationship. And people have seen coyotes and badgers bonding in different ways. You know, they'll be playing, they'll be napping together, and they'll even, like, rub what? noses together <gasps> and snuggle. nuzzle. Yeah. Oh, so uh, cute. I love and that. it's been documented both by scientists and also indigenous cultures out in the West, like Navajo and Hopi tribes. They have these creation stories surrounding badgers and coyotes cooperating together. So, yeah, it's very easy to anthropomorphize animals, of course, when we see these little bits and pieces of their lives. 
But it also opens up this question of, and there was a biologist who wrote a really great write-up of this in High Country News saying, when we see these behaviors, we shouldn't always think that they're instinctive. You know, mm. they, animals can have personalities. They can be individuals. So we could just be seeing one animal developing a relationship with another animal outside of its species, mm. maybe altruistically, maybe because it wants to bond, or maybe it's just all about fitness. We don't know. But we should explore that question of there being these complex personalities to these animals. So not all behavior has to be coded in, in instinct like that. Yeah. So there are other examples of animals from different species doing this kind of hunting. A 17-year-long study in New Zealand found pods of false killer whales, which is very confusing. Um, (laughs) They are not killer whales. They look like porpoises, but they're actually dolphins. They saw pods mixed of false killer whales and common bottlenose dolphins foraging together. Hmm. But then they would also spend years just, you know, in these pods swimming together, maybe fending off predators. So again, it's like outside of the hunting scope. Yeah. These scientists who were snorkeling in the Red Sea saw these grouper fish going up to coral reefs and kind of shaking their heads at moray eels, which, again, two species that don't usually interact. And it was seen that so these groupers would fail at hunting a smaller prey. They would chase it into the reef and then not be able to get at it. So they would go and recruit a moray eel to come over. They would do like a little headstand over (laughs) where they had chased the prey into. And then the eel would slip in and grab the prey or retrieve it for the groupers. So again, this kind of like exchange between two very different predators. And that was maybe the first recorded cooperation between two fish species. It does sound straight out of Finding Nemo. (laughs) I Like every one of these examples just sounds like a Disney thing. It's kind of, it's bizarre. And then my personal favorite is there's this well-known behavior in Africa, specifically Tanzania, where the Yao community, they actually have this call and response system with the greater honey guide, which is this like Mm. beautiful pink-billed bird native to Africa. And what they do is they have this specific call. It's like a brr humph. And I can't roll my R's, but it's like this beautiful ringing R that I can't do. Wow. Um, and is there audio of the sound online? There is. Um, okay. I'm yeah. leaving a space right here, and it's going to – you can hear it. Okay. And that actually beckons the honey guide, and then it will lead these yao hunters through the forest to these giant hives, which the hunters will then smoke the bees out and pull the hive down, and they'll collect the honey, and then the honey guide bird will go in and eat the wax and the larvae. So this, yeah, this relationship is maybe like 500 years old, but it's more recent that they've developed this actual communication system where the bird you know the bird would show up like 66 percent of the time when called so anyway i for one am very excited to go out west and just see like a badger and a coyote (laughs) really snuggling up to each other yeah you know drinking some beers (laughs) the boys boys. (laughs) out on the range um Yeah, I also would love to see a coyote try and, like, team up with a 
much fiercer honey badger or something. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. <laughs> Impossible maybe, but I don't know. So if if you could have intraspecies hunting partner, oh. what would it be? That's Man, a good question. That, that like I you know, you want something that complements your skill set and the thing is that if we're talking about me hunting, I don't know what my <laughs> skill set is. I have one. Oh, I have an idea. I want a sea otter to fish me like delicious sea scallops. Oh, that would be. What would you give to it? Uh, Belly rubs. Yeah, <laughs> snuggles. There we go. Yes. Oh gosh, perfect. I really want to have a good answer to this. I don't. What about like a, a truffle pig? Mm, <laughs> or a truffle puppy. Oh, that's really good too. I would. I yeah. I would love to have a a mushroom hunting. Dog. I feel like you love mushrooms. That's like I do love mushrooms, and I am probably better than a dog is at knowing which mushrooms are poisonous. That's true. But a dog is better at finding all mushrooms. Yeah. <laughs> because of how it can snurfle the ground for them. <laughs> so I think that would be a great symbiotic relationship. I'm going to get on Pet Finder right now. Yeah. <laughs> Filter <laughs> truffle hunting puppy. <laughs> Goals. But I wouldn't want to just look for truffles. There are only so many truffles in the world. That's and there are a lot fair. of other good mushrooms to eat. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Then we'll be back with more facts. Okay, we're back. Jess. Yeah. Why don't you tell us about chickens? Okay, well... I'm going to get there, but it's going to be a little roundabout, so stick with me. (laughs) So a few weeks ago, I was visiting my family in the suburbs of Chicago, and we were reminiscing about the first time that our dog, Zeke, caught a possum. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, this this first time he caught one, it was like acting like a possum, playing dead, and it was like totally stiff and frozen, and Zeke, the dog, just had it in his mouth, like marching around, like evading my dad who's trying to catch him, like classic situation. And eventually my dad caught Zeke, and he dropped the possum on the driveway, and it was still playing possum, as they say. So my dad grabbed Zeke's collar, dragged him inside, went to get a shovel so we could like fling it into the forest reserve next to our yard. But when he came back out, the possum was gone (laughs) and had woken up and ran away. And we were all kind of talking about this. And we were like, so like, so why does this work? Like, how is this advantageous in a real predator scenario? Like, if it's not a dog just looking for a fun time, like, (laughs) wouldn't that coyote feasibly just want to eat it? Like, that's just like a layup, like free food. (laughs) But after I researched this, I realized that the reason predators are averse to eating these possums playing dead is because the possums just so convincingly makes it seem as if it's diseased and, like, decaying. So, you know, like, possums curl up their little hands and they, like, hunch over and they drool and stuff, so they look dead. But they also secrete a mucus from their (laughs) anal glands. Oh, yes. And it smells like decaying possum. Like, they really put on a performance. So they're not just pretending to be dead. They're pretending to be, like, past their sell-by date. Totally. Exactly. And that's totally why this whole spiel works for them. Like, the predator's like, if I didn't kill this, then, like, why did it die? Does it have a disease? I don't want to eat it. Yeah. It's not fresh food. And before I deviate over to the hypnosis tangent, I just want to take a moment to stand possums. (laughs) I love possums. Sorry, only a moment to stand possums? Yeah, yeah. 
But mm-hmm. have you had to smell their anal secretion? No, I haven't. Um, maybe that would change if I had. <laughs> but for now, I think they're extremely baller. They eat a ton of ticks. Mm. Oh, that's um, great. Yeah. And some estimates show that they eat over 5,000 ticks per season per possum. Oh, I love nice. that for them. I hate thinking about it, but. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, they're like very, very efficient groomers, and that's mm. why. So they just like slurp them up. <laughs> um, and there is some evidence that that actually helps the, stop the spread of Lyme disease. Sure. Someone's got to eat them. <laughs> yeah. They also eat a lot of other random stuff like slugs and garden pests, and they are largely immune to snake venom. So they can eat like venomous snakes. <laughs> <What>? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we stand. Oh, and to get enough calcium in their diets, they eat the skeletons of roadkill. Wow. Yeah. What can they not eat? <laughs> That's a good question. I didn't find anything they couldn't eat. And they are also the only marsupial that exists in North America. Mm. And they have prehensile tails. So, yeah. Anyway, it's, you know, scary when your dog encounters one. Like, you should definitely avoid that at all costs. But they're nice to have in your yard. They keep things running smoothly. When they do that dead trick, if it's a mother, can she sometimes have, like, the babies in her pouch? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how that works, like, if the babies would have to play it cool, too. (laughs) Be chill. (laughs) Yeah. But anyway... I'm here to talk about chickens and hypnotism. (laughs) So (laughs) while I was learning all of these great possum facts, I clicked through to the Wikipedia page for something called apparent death, which is another word for playing possum. And it turns – Yeah. It's it's a little more clinical. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But it turns out a lot of other animals play dead. Mm. Like I said, it's not a bad strategy. You know, if a predator sees an animal that dies before it can kill it. They're like, what's up with you? Yeah, exactly. Like, who knows what disease is lurking within? So there are two kinds of apparent death, and they overlap a little bit. But the first is called thanatosis, which is where animals just dramatically play dead. And that's like what a possum does. You know, it has all these ways, like the mucus, the curling of the paws, the drooling. Like, it's really leaning into that performance. Sure. And it's also what we tell humans to do if confronted by a brown bear to play dead. Right. So then the bear thinks you're diseased or dead or whatever. It's like not interested. It wants to kill you and then eat you. Right. So if you're already dead. There's no glory. There's no glory. (laughs) (laughs) And then there are some spiders that play dead. Like if you shake them from their webs, they just curl up and then they'll like walk away later. Oh. Mm. Should I try that? You could try it. Okay. And then there's the eastern hognose snake. There was a video that went viral or maybe just like on Reddit or Twitter a few months ago that will, if you like jostle it around a lot, it will like writhe around like it's in pain and like grimace and then (laughs) stick its tongue out and turn belly up. (laughs) And if you try to like physically turn it over like on the with its belly to the grass, it like will turn back belly up like because that's its. What a dead smart position. Reptile. Yeah, I think it's really cute. And sometimes it'll like half regurgitate like a toad leg <laughs> to complete the performance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You should definitely Google that if you feel like you can stomach seeing that. But the other kind of apparent death is called tonic immobility. Mm. And that's pretty much just when animals like are totally paralyzed, like frozen solid. It's the classic deer in the headlights response, and it's also where the phrase scared stiff comes from. Mm. And it's the same idea behind it, being that predators don't want to eat prey they didn't kill themselves. 
And tons of species do this. So there's plenty of amphibians, reptiles like iguanas, sharks do this, pigeons, chickens, butterflies, beetles, ants, bees, stick bugs. The list goes on. And it actually also happens in humans, people think. Many victims of assault, especially sexual assault, will report feeling just totally paralyzed while being attacked. And that usually is tonic immobility. Mm -hmm. So when people ask, like, why didn't you do anything? It's literally because the body went through this, like, biological response that has worked for animals for, like, feasibly millions of years Mm -hmm. across the whole animal kingdom. And it's had clear evolutionary advantages. And while we don't totally know the chemistry of what's going on in the brain when this happens, for mammals it seems like it has to do with neurotransmitters like serotonin and parts of the parasympathetic nervous system – But to come full circle, (laughs) where the chickens, (laughs) humans have found ways to induce tonic immobility in animals over the last few hundred years. And when they do that, they like to call it hypnosis. Oh. So one example is if you watch Shark Week, you might have seen divers rubbing sharks' noses and making them just go frozen mid-swim. And orcas have figured this out, too. And they, like, have been observed making sharks freeze before eating them. (laughs) And while it is less badass, you can hypnotize chickens. (laughs) For whatever reason, they have this, like, fear response when you tuck their heads behind their wings and, like, give them a little rock. And also when you place their head on the ground and then draw a line with dirt or, like, with chalk, like, straight out from their beak on the ground, like, just like a straight line. And they just freeze and stare at the line. What? Yeah. They freeze. Are they ready to get their heads chopped off? People don't know. They just know that it's a fear response and they're unsure why. Whoa. And the first report of this was back in 1648 by a German scholar in Rome. Who was having just a wild day. (laughs) A normal one. Out with his chickens. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then later on, Hemingway talked about hypnotizing chickens in his posthumous 1985 book, The Dangerous Summer. Quote, It was a parlor trick that had much success in East Africa. Sometimes I would have a dozen chickens lying asleep in a row on the porch of some native hut in a village under Kilimanjaro when we needed something badly, and it was necessary to make magic to obtain it. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Be more of a blowhard. Totally. Yeah. (laughs) And today, Werner Herzog has hypnotized chickens in some of his films, um, (laughs) which does not surprise me at all. Adam Savage did it on Mythbusters once. Oh, my God, this track record. Um, (laughs) And it says on Wikipedia that Al Gore used to do it. (laughs) But I can't find any evidence, so it's unconfirmed. But I would like to believe that Al Gore has hypnotized chickens. Al Um, Gore, please call us. Let us know. (laughs) Send us a video of you hypnotizing a chicken. Please. (laughs) But, yeah, that's my story of chicken hypnotism in a roundabout way, starting with possums. Wow. I love it. Far fewer chickens than I was expecting, but a wonderful tale. Thanks. So what was the weirdest thing we learned this week? I have to say, it's really hard for me to choose between badgers and coyotes being pals. And just that last bit about the chicken (laughs) hypnosis, I mean, it was all fascinating. But I was going to say, I feel like I can't deny the spicy history of Mr. Ferris with with his cheating wife. Wow. Well, maybe it's a tie then. It could be a tie. Since I think you both won. You both liked Ferris wheels. Yeah. Sure. Great. Awesome. We're all winners. We're all winners here. The weirdest thing I learned this week is a popular science podcast. 
We're available on all major podcast platforms, so subscribe wherever you're listening now. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other weirdos find the show. For more information on the stories you heard in this episode, come find us at popsi.com slash weird. You can buy our merch, including Weirdest Thing t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs at popsi.threadless.com. The show is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Feltman, with editing and audio engineering by Jess Bodie. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.